Good evening, everyone. Welcome to Spin Class. We're talking politics. I'm your host, Michael Fragan, here on the Nachum Siegel Network, NachumSiegel.com, JM in the AM.org. Here with me, Executive Assistant Aframi in the control booth. Welcome to another Thursday afternoon evening of political talk. And uh, afternoon evening, you know, we changed the clocks, so it's still daylight here, and it's, uh, you know, it's been a tough winter, so... We're moving on. We move on to the spring season. Spring season brings us to budget season in Albany. April 1st, that interesting budget date where try and get all things done. Anything that can be thrown in the budget, they try and throw in the budget here in Albany. And we're going to talk about that a lot later. we got a great show coming up for you. Going to touch a wide variety of items. But the first one, I think, that came out today was a press conference uh, that was interesting and noteworthy in the sense that it wasn't really a press conference at all. It was an announcement by the legal team of one governor of New Jersey, Chris Christie, and his legal team, led by Randy Mastro, former deputy mayor of New York City under Mayor Giuliani. And they did an exhaustive, or some might say quibble with that as far as exhaustive, but certainly exhaustive as far as the tab for the people and the good citizens of New Jersey, a $1 million tab for this investigation into Bridgegate. And what did they find? The governor's lawyer found that Christie was not guilty. And if that makes you cynical a little bit, I understand because I feel a little bit cynical about that. I feel a little bit cynical about the fact that they went ahead and did this type of investigation and uh, out there, and I, look, I, I think Christie's been a, a good governor aside from this. I think he's been solid. I, I'm not sure that I was necessarily on the Christie for president bandwagon, but I will say, uh, getting out ahead of it, it's it's an interesting it's an interesting play here to try and get the public to accept the fact that he spent a million dollars on an investigation which cleared him, done by his own attorney. So you'll have to digest that for a second and. We'll just, that's a little editorial note as we start off. So great show coming up. As always, sponsored by Beckerman, Beckerman Public Relations, Beckerman Public Affairs, building market leadership through public relations, BeckermanPR.com. And we have this evening with us Adam Dichter, who has just left the Jewish Week, where he wrote about politics for quite a few years. We're going to speak to him. After that, we got Albany Hand, Albany columnist for the Daily News, Bill Hammond updating us on the state of the New York state budget, the budget negotiations, the three men in a room, now four men in a room up in Albany. Then we're going to talk to Tom Carroll, get an update on the education investment tax credit that we talked about last week and see what the prognosis is for that as we go into the budget. We got Ross Barkin coming on a little bit later. On top of that, talking about an interesting little political note here in the Brooklyn Jewish firmament. And uh, we're going to top that off with a little discussion locally, at least for me, of uh, of some local school board politics, another school for sale, potentially, in the Five Towns area of Long Island. Let's jump right in. We have Adam Dichter on the line. Adam Dichter, who has the assistant managing editor for many years at the Jewish Week, wrote about politics, definitely has broken and reported on a lot of stories out there. So I'll call it an exit interview, Adam, but welcome back to spin class and uh, welcome to your new job uh, out there on the other side of things uh, doing public relations instead of being doing journalism thank you very much michael it's a, it's a pleasure to be back on your show 
And, uh, yeah, it has been a long haul covering uh, New York City politics, Jewish politics. Um, it was a really tremendous experience. I, I value every minute that I was doing it, and uh, you know, I thought it was time to do something new. But, you know, it'll be interesting to be watching from the other side and reading and, and getting news uh, broken by other people. Well, well, now you have a chance to shape the news uh, from a different perspective, right? And what's the new firm called? Ducas? Ducas? Yeah, the... uh, Ducas Public Relations. Ducas. And uh, it's a great firm. I've known Richard Ducas for many years. I'm happy to be uh, to be working with them. They've got some tremendous uh, clients. And uh, like I said, it's a chance to do something different, to work with some uh, people in the financial world, taking really a different uh, tack and a different uh, direction. Okay, well... Since I have another public relations firm as a sponsor, I can't plug you necessarily, but I will say Adam is a seasoned veteran who knows how to shape a report on news. Adam, first question for you. Very kind. That yeah. I was thinking about it is, is there such a thing as Jewish politics? You've kind of talked about Jewish politics, but we, when you think about Jewish politics, is it Jewish politicians? Is it the Jewish community? Like what defines or is everything in New York, because there are so many Jews, is everything That's Jewish excellent politics? Question. Excellent question, as usual, Michael because it goes to the larger issue of what does being Jewish mean today. For many of us, it means many, many different things. There are people who, for whom being Jewish defines everything in their lives. Uh, if you're extremely religious, then being Jewish defines everything. There are other people in the city, perhaps more of them in the area, who really define Jewish as being more of an ethnicity, being more of you know just a background, and uh, there are other, other values that they hold more dear, uh, you know, liberal values. So, you know, a challenge that Jewish, that Jewish and non-Jewish politicians always face is how to reach across the spectrum and appeal to the so-called Jewish vote. And this has been my life for the last 21 years, the Jewish vote. How is the Jewish vote going to go? But we all know, and politicians can tell you, there is not one Jewish vote. There are many Jewish votes. What people care about in Williamsburg is not what people care about in Park Slope and Brooklyn Heights or the Upper West Side. Obviously, Israel is a very big unifying factor, and that's why... Um, a lot of politicians kind of hone in on that as the way to get everybody, although not necessarily in the Southmore or Williamsburg community. It's not going to score you any points. Uh, but it is a way probably to get the maximum number of Jewish votes. But as Mayor de Blasio found out recently, uh, even being very pro-Israel is not necessarily going to reach across that spectrum because when you uh, say wonderful things about APAC and say my door is always open to APAC, there will be those who will react because they're more aligned with K Street, which is now an alternative. So it becomes a particularly difficult landscape to navigate um, for, for politicians. You can still probably reach the majority of people by being kind of uh, supportive of the Israeli government and not critical, but there are people who do uh, want to see the Israeli government kind of get pressured by the by the administration uh, to do what they believe is the right thing. So very, very interesting. Question, and there's no easy answer to it. So I, I think it does become more tricky. To, right. to define Jewish issues, but we are as a people, one Jewish people, and what really unites us most is that we care about each other, and when it all comes down to it, we're, we're, we suffer from the same anti-Semitism, and uh, we do live our lives, whether you're Orthodox, conservative, secular, you know, caring about other Jews, because we know if we don't look out for each other, we can't necessarily expect other people to look out for us. Well, well said, and I guess that leads me to a next a question, or follow-up question on that. We rarely see politicians... I mean, almost never do we see politicians in New York campaigning or being anti-Israel, except for maybe Charles Barron, who's really an outlier, right? It, it's right. kind of, it's yeah. still toxic out there to go ahead. We, we have very liberal politicians in New York, some of the most liberal members of Congress, like Jerry Nadler, for example, who, who is, we probably be considered an Israel hawk 
on many issues. So at the same time, that liberalism doesn't always match a uh, on on the Israel issue. And I think the de Blasio thing kind of uh, probably prompted some, you know, some 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 turn some heads for a lot right. of people. Everybody has to play to their particular bailiwick. Most of politicians, you know, other than the ones who are elected citywide and statewide, most of the local politicians have a district, and they have to know the district. If you got elected, that means you generally know the district pretty well. As you mentioned, Charles Barron knew who was electing him and voting for him, and that's, you know, he not that he wasn't heartfelt in his convictions uh, on the issues, but, uh, you know, I think a lot of people would be reluctant to, uh, to, to go against the district that they're in. But even if you have a district that you perceive to be sort of anti-Israel, and they're content, or that isn't the main issue for them. They're much more concerned with local issues, bringing home the programs and, and the funding dollars. Uh, you still have to be concerned that if you, if you upset the pro-Israel uh, you know, lobby, there will be people who will, um, who will act to be active against you and try to unseat you. It happens to, it's happened to many members of Congress. It's happened uh, probably not too often in New York City. So that's something I think they're conscious of. Right. So, Adam, 21 years at the Jewish Week, and what do you consider some of your best stories? Give me, like, the top three. Oh, it's, it's, it's so hard to uh, <laughs> go back. I mean, obviously, the, the 1998 Senate race uh, between uh, Al D'Amato and Chuck Schumer was obviously a very... Classic. Uh, classic. Yeah, it was a classic uh, because, you know, that, that was really a close race. And when we started out covering that in, in early, of, uh, I guess, in mid-1997 or 98, when it started shaping up. You know, first, there was a real primary between Schumer, I think it was Geraldine Ferraro, and maybe one other person. I think Mark Green and, was uh, in there also. I think so, yeah. It's going so far back. Yeah, you can usually just but, assume a Democratic primary, Mark Green was in there, right? Yeah, maybe. <laughs> uh, but it wasn't at all clear that Chuck Schumer would get the nomination. When he did get the nomination, I remember the headline of the Jewish Week was, you know, how do you choose between two friends? You had two really good supporters of Israel and Al D'Amato and, and Chuck Schumer. And, uh, you know, as it turned out, it was a very close race until the end. Uh, and Schumer kind of pulled ahead. But I, I think, you know, by having a little bit more class, I guess, in, in the way he acted, and, and also there was a little bit of fatigue against D'Amato, which worked in Schumer's favor. Now, you um, were the one who broke the famous Potsdam remark, correct? Well, who knows if it would have come out anyway, but uh, I, we were definitely the first to have it, and people, um, people definitely attributed it to the Jewish Week. We had it first. Uh, and of course, what made well, there were no there was no Twitter back then. There were no blogs, so back then it, it really was really yeah. The internet was in its infancy. I remember we had it on our website, but uh, definitely no Facebook. It probably was, but it, it didn't matter because Schumer's uh, people got wind of it, and uh, I guess they probably um, told reporters about it. And it was Demato denying it, which really was what uh, did him in worse than than the I guess insult itself. Okay, so what would be number two then? You want to get? I, I'd love to hear just some of the nostalgia, some of these these stories out there from the political yesteryear. Well, I don't know so much in terms of scoops, but I can tell you the stories that I, that really uh, affected me that I thought were really significant stories. I mean, most recently, uh, the Met Council story was something that I think was, was is really significant because it still uh, it still has so many repercussions today with an organization that is really important in the city trying to. Uh, to do its work and and having the scandal come along and really just kick them in the stomach, uh, and I think they're probably starting to get their way back. You know, one of the last stories I did was uh, the first interview with the with the new with Willie Raffogel's successor, David Frankel, and uh, he really had his work cut out for him when he came in uh, during the summer and had to get this organization back on track. And he met with uh, city officials, state officials. They worked out an agreement. They've got to pay all this money back to the city and state. And, 
And the most important thing is trying not to let the neediest people suffer uh, for, for something they had absolutely nothing to do with. And um, there was a political scandal because so many people had received contributions and were tied to it. And that uh, council really was a political address. You had to be seen at their breakfast. And um, you know, they had to, it, I think uh, I'm sure you'll, you'll feel the same way, Michael. It was such a shock. Uh, nobody ever expected something like that to come from. Right, for sure not, for sure not. We're talking to Adam Dichter here on Spirit Class, sponsored by Beckerman, BeckermanPR.com. Adam just has just left the Jewish Week. We're getting some of the 21 years of built-up experience and knowledge with regard to the Jewish community. Mm-hmm. And uh, how has the Jewish community changed? I know you identified Israel, whether it's unifying, not unifying, but the, the, the community itself, and certainly as you've reported, it's more Orthodox, more Russian, than it, than than it has been, and how has that attributed to the dynamic? How does that attribute? How does that contribute to the difference in the way politicians might see the Jewish community? That's a good question. Uh, the, you mentioned the Russian-speaking voters is, is is very significant now. You now have a, a Russian-speaking member of the assembly, and now one in um, in the city council, Mark Traeger, and they're starting to get elected. I think they ran for many years. Of course, uh, David Sorbin also was elected in the Senate. So they are now moving beyond, you know, people whose voters sought out to people actually who, who are, you know, becoming players on the political scene. That's that's significant, but I don't think that really has filtered so much into the consciousness of elected officials and factoring that because that's a little bit more of a conservative vote than what people are used to. Uh, you see them, I think, probably a little bit more open to the conservative Democrat side or, or even the Republican side. Uh, but you know, the the Jewish community is is always, uh, you know, the, the if you look at the demographics. That came out in the most recent uh, Jewish community survey. The Orthodox community is very, very significant, and will become more significant in the future because a large share—I don't have the percentage offhand—but a large share of the children in New York City today are Orthodox children. They're going to grow up and be Orthodox voters, so it's going to become an increasingly large part of the voter base. And what will, how will that translate politically down the road? I mean, will you see? Well, a one shift? of the big things, as you know, that people are. Uh, are pushing for is some kind of relief for people who pay tuition. You know, that TCHNYS and the Orthodox Unions Advocacy Group is up in Albany trying to get some kind of, and it's an uphill battle because this is New York and the teachers union is very powerful, doesn't want to do anything for people who are uh, uh, going to private school. They feel like if you're not going to public school, you made your bed, you sleep in it. But uh, there is there are sympathetic legislators out there, and there are ways that you can help tuition paying parents without taking money away from uh, private schools. I'm sorry, taking away from public schools. So I think that that's going to become an issue that certainly is going to be, you know, raising the volume, whether they can make progress or not, I don't know, because, uh, you know, the landscape in New York is still what it is. Yeah, certainly, and, uh, certainly still a liberal town and certainly been demonstrated by the recent mayoral election. Right. And uh, let's just uh, discuss for a second the, yeah, if we can go hyper, hyper, focus on a specific bill. We had a couple weeks ago, we talked about the fact that the Senate had passed this anti-boycott divestment sanctions mm-hmm. bill right. and the state Senate and the assembly was, was it was sponsored in the assembly by the speaker and usually doesn't mm-hmm. stop. And then by, bottled up right. the committee and they said they were going to resubmit it right away. Mm-hmm. And David Weprin actually came on the show and said, Oh, it's a, just a you know couple editing thing and we're going to go ahead and resubmit it. And it wasn't done. And then we had an, uh, one of the guests on the show basically said this is a big problem in the Democratic Party. That there are serious interest groups who – Yeah, Ryan Carbon was saying that. Yes, uh, he was on the show. Yeah. He said it sure. here that that there is a skunk in the tent of the Democratic Party. It stuck with me right. because most 
you know, the language skunk in the tent, you know, that's, that's pretty, mm-hmm. that's something you kind of stays with you. Do you think mm-hmm. that that going down the road, you kind of alluded to it earlier with that people criticizing de Blasio on the, on the, mm-hmm. uh, APAC uh, speech. Is this going to be a long-term problem for Democrats uh, as far as the trying to placate the left at the same time placate the Jewish community? Probably less so in New York because of the, of the very high concentration of pro-Israel voters here. But this but, is in New York, well, and think, it didn't pass. Is, it's yeah, in New yeah. York. That, that was a result probably more of the teachers' union, as I mentioned, being very powerful here, and they were against It's not something they would ordinarily take up, but I think they didn't like the idea of teachers being told what to do, even though it really wasn't what the language of the bill was. You know, that bill was really much more of a ceremonial bill. I don't know how much teeth it really had, what kind of a lasting impact it would have had. It was more a way for these legislators to, to take a stand against what is a very, very serious growing movement of BDS. And um, I, I think it, it's absolutely becoming more respectable, and that's something that's a factor in New York. But I still think it's less of a factor here than in other parts of the country where it's becoming very, very acceptable to still even consider yourself pro-Israel and, and support sanctions against Israel even if you're not supporting sanctions against Iran or anybody else who's a thousand times worse than Israel. It's democracy. But, uh, you know, the BDS movement is growing on campuses, and these are the future elected officials. These are future voters. So I think it's a much bigger problem on college campuses than it is in the assembly. Sure, hall. and you reported on what was going on in Brooklyn last year in, in you know, for the paper. Just as Brooklyn far, College. Brooklyn yeah. College, correct. Yeah. People who are young and idealistic, they uh, and like I said, they don't need... It, it, they've got cover, and they don't have to consider themselves anti-Israel. There are a lot of people who, who are pro Look what's going on in Hillel. Within the movement of Hillel, uh, there, there's a schism now of people who believe that uh, Hillel should be open to speakers who support BDS. Um, they partner with, with uh, pro-Palestinian groups. You know, and I'm not saying you know taking sides one way or the other. I'm just saying that, that that's a very big division that's going on in the Hillel movement, and it's happening elsewhere too. So. It definitely will have a political impact, but like I, I believe still less so in New York. Uh, it'll be more of a factor that people have to face and, and something that politicians have to take a position on. Uh, but I think the, you know, the no-brainer position is still going to be to be against it. Okay, great. Adam Dichter, now at uh, Dukas Public Relations, formerly of the Jewish Week for 21 years. Quite impressive career and pretty much covered everything going on in politics and Jewish politics over those past two decades. Adam, thanks for joining us once again, and we'll have you again soon. Always a pleasure, and I'll continue listening to your show so I can find out more of what's going on. Well, fantastic. Thank you. Thank you, Adam, and uh, it's always a pleasure. Uh, This is Spin Class, and we're talking politics and going uh, shifting for a second to Albany, up to Albany, uh, where it's still quite cold even for late March, but the action going on in the State House with uh, the budget is uh, fast and furious, and we have Bill Hammond of the Daily News, columnist for the Daily News, going to explain a little bit to us, try and enlighten us and tell us what exactly is going on, what is going to happen, what isn't going to happen. But first and foremost, I wanted to ask Bill about the fact that the FBI was once again busy in the State House this week, and it's a shame. I think we're up to like 35 legislators who have now been caught up in scandal in the past decade. It might even be higher than that, Bill. And what is going on exactly in Albany these days? Well, I, uh, I've long since given up trying to explain why uh, why there's so much of that going on up here. But um, it's true. I, I think 35 is the number. If I, if I remember correctly, it was over a period of eight years, so not even a decade. But um, that is the latest two I, I think you wanted to hear about. One was uh, Queen's Assemblyman... Uh, William Scarborough, uh, the FBI uh, knocked on the the door of his hotel room uh, 
uh, in Albany, and they also searched his office. They seized his his uh, cell phone, among other things. They were, uh, as he explains it, they were investigating whether he was padding his expense account. Um, he, are you with me? Oh yeah, and he, um, you know, he, the, via he, per diems. Tell tell us what a per diem is. Well, this is this is actually not that uncommon a thing in in the business and government world that when you travel on official business, you're given you're 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 reimbursed for certain costs, and then you're given a fixed amount for say meals. Uh, in this case, it's for meals and lodging. Um, and so when members of the legislature from out of town are in Albany on official business, they're entitled to $172, and that's supposed to cover the cost of wherever they stay and whatever they eat, and it's $172 per day. Uh, and the idea is that you don't have to, you don't have to keep receipts, and you don't have to, you know, the, the, the government that's reimbursing you doesn't have to go to the trouble to calculate the exact amounts and check everything out first. They just give you, you tell them how many days you were in Albany, and you get a check for that for that times 172. So what's the issue? Everybody's on the honor system. They're all honorable. It's in their title. So what? Well, what, this what's is, the, it's uh, been a chronic issue, and I think it. You know, I think I have to say, it, I think it partly derives from the fact that the legislators haven't had a raise since the last one was in January 1999. They've been at uh, the base salary $79,500 ever since then. Some of them get stipends of a few thousand on top of that, but it's uh, now to most New Yorkers that would sound like a pretty nice paycheck, but these guys feel like it's not enough given the stature of their position, and uh, and they've been they've been going without a cost of living increase of any kind, and for for some of them who this is their only job, they don't have outside employment, they're allowed to, but they don't. And so I think some of them, I have to say, have have resorted to um, looking on the per diems as an extra source of income. And so they come to Albany sometimes when they don't necessarily have to. And they have maybe they have an apartment here that they're paying a fixed rent for. And so the per diem is it's extra money that they get if they if they're paying the rent whether they're in Albany or not. But the days when they're in Albany, they collect the per diem. Okay. And in, well, and in the case yeah. of Mr. Scarborough himself, he he actually gave some details about what the FBI was asking about. Right. He apparently spoke to the FBI without a lawyer, which is impressive, right? Very courageous, or maybe some people well, might say otherwise. Yeah, I don't know about the advisability of that, but he also spoke to the press afterwards, which I'm thankful for. And one of the things he said was that they 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 brought up a particular day when he was in uh, New York City. He was teaching a course at Brooklyn College. And then he turned around and claimed a per diem for that day. And his and his answer, as he explained to the media, was, "Well, what they don't understand is that at the end of the day, I got I packed up, I got in my car, and I drove. I left all I left New York at 9:30, and I was in Albany, and I stayed the night in Albany. And the assembly rules are that if you stay the night, you get a per diem for that day, no matter how." How much of that day you were in town, you get a per diem for that day. I don't. I don't actually know if he's accurately describing the rules, but uh, I think his point was that, you know, as the rules as he understands them, he was entitled to a per diem for that day. He wasn't. He wasn't stealing. He wasn't breaking the law. He was claiming what he was entitled to. 
it, it must uh, now, be. You got to figure out whether it's the rule should be that loose. That if you know, let, let's say he got in at two in the morning, does he really deserve uh, one hundred seventy-two dollars for meals that he did not eat in Albany the day before? I don't know. Yeah, well, it, it's pretty interesting that it's worth it for him to travel back to Albany just to get one hundred and sixty-two dollars. I mean, that's a well, that, his, you know, his travel expenses, his mileage. Uh, or if he takes the train, that's also paid for separately. It, that's covered. Whatever it costs is reimbursed. Right. So so it's uh, so it's like it's like getting uh, a paycheck as a separate as a separate item. Well, we'll have to see where this leads. And there's certainly been no lack of activity for the FBI over the past couple of years in Albany. Yeah. So certainly, I, I guess these guys or some people are earning whatever paycheck they're going on. And we're talking to Bill Hammond here on Spin Class, sponsored by Beckerman and. Bill, where are we in the budget with the April 1st is the deadline. That's Tuesday. The governor has maintained that he is not going to issue a message of necessity. That means the budget bills have to be done three days in advance in order for them to pass on April right. 1st. So we're getting yeah. pretty close to the end here. It depends on how you count. I mean, I think most people are assuming that they have to have the bills introduced. If they're going to follow that procedure, they have to have the bills introduced by Friday, by, by midnight tomorrow. I I know that some people count a little differently, sort of the sort of the way Mr. Scarborough counts his per diems. The day they introduce the legislation counts as one of the days under that logic. And so even if you introduced it just before midnight on Saturday, Saturday would count, Sunday would count, and Monday would be the third day, and you'd be good. But regardless, they are definitely coming down to the crunch time. You have to remember that even after the leaders and the governor come to their agreement, there's a, a lot of work that has to be done converting the details of their handshake deals into written language in bill form and and making sure that all the numbers are correct and the wording is correct, and then getting it to the printer and then having it literally printed and placed on the members' desks by whatever hour, whatever deadline you set. There's a lot, there's hours and hours of intensive labor involved there. I actually think that, you know, I don't want to doubt the governor's word, but I have to think if it comes down to it, it's a choice between him issuing a message of necessity or having the budget be late for the first time in his term when he's running for re-election. He's going to issue that message of necessity. I don't even think that's a close call. Yeah, I always wonder whether anybody, since you have to explain it to everyone, that the public really cares about this message of necessity. I, I certainly, it wouldn't be the first time that legislators have voted on something they haven't read, right? We had that with the SAFE Act earlier or last year. Many people right, said they actually right. hadn't read it before they the passed it. That was probably the most famous example. The governor has done it a few other times as well. Um, I think... It is. It, it's sort of a procedural issue. I don't know how much it hits home with average voters, whether they care or not. It's it's something that policy wonks care about, and certainly interest groups who are anxious to know about how a bill helps them or hurts them, and if it hurts them, and they want to have a chance to make their case to the legislature, which they deserve, frankly. The, the the less time they have to make that case, the, the less fair it is to them. And that's what the point of the three days is, really, is to give people a chance to see what they're voting on and react to it and maybe, uh, you know, lobby for changes at the last minute. So 
Bill, would you say Governor Cuomo is walking a little bit of a political tightrope these days? Uh, people are shooting at him from the left, uh, accusing him of being governing too much like a Republican. The working families is nipping at his heels uh, as far as maybe not giving him the line, their their gubernatorial line coming up this year. And, you know, he is trying to make everybody happy in an election year, and that's not so easy. So how would you say he's he's getting through this Albany budget season? Well, there's no question that he is taking flack from both sides. I mean, you've got the newly announced candidate on the Republican side taking every opportunity to question his record, to question his his statements, to question his um, actions from from the Republican point of view. That's Rob Astorino, uh, the county right, executive yeah, of Westchester Astorino, County. The executive of Westchester County. And now, and you're increasingly hearing criticism from the left. You know, this is a it's a predominantly Democratic state, especially in New York City, and 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 it tends to be a more um, liberal, progressive type of Democrat. That again, especially in New York City, you have. A, a pretty progressive liberal mayor who was just elected down there. Progressive wing of the party is sort of feeling its oats and and feeling like it ought to be having more say over things. And they and and I think Governor Cuomo would agree that he, uh, at least on fiscal issues, he has been uh, sort of center right on say on the issue of not raising taxes, on the issue of of pushing to cut taxes, including taxes that are paid primarily by wealthy people. He's, that's part of his agenda this year. He's, he pushed through a tax cap that was kind of a, a crusade for uh, more conservative people. So on, on that front, the, the left has, has a lot to complain about. But on social issues, he's been pretty much... Um, He's had a lot to brag about to progressives. I mean, the, the biggest thing would be that he got gay marriage legalized, which was, for a lot of them, was very impressive and important. Um, so he, he, so I, I agree I, that, he, that he's walking a tightrope on some level, but he's really kind of in the catbird seat, really. When when you look at, he has very broad and solid support. Um, heading into the beginning of the campaign season, and he's he hasn't even really begun to campaign in earnest. Um, he has a huge money advantage over Astorino, uh, and so I I don't see any serious threat to his to his reelection. At least the way it looks now, the way the numbers look now. Um, I guess what some people think he's worried about, and and probably they're right. Is the margin of victory that he's he's looking to really run up the score and have an impressive number on election day, and I suppose whatever discontent there is on the left could cut into that. But he still has he has this budget to uh, to do something that they like. For example, a big priority of theirs is is to bring public. A uh, big priority, progressives. That is, is to bring public financing to to uh, campaigns in New York State for state office. Right. So there's another a, the, big priority would be to to uh, include undoc the children of undocumented immigrants uh, in the uh, state's tuition assistance program for college. The Dream Act. 
And yeah, the, those are two things that are kind of on the front burner. They're, they're, and, 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 and also college for and college for convicted or I'm sorry for prisoners currently in uh, in prison. I think there was yeah. another one he threw out there. And it's certainly, a little lower priority, I would say. It kind of came out of the blue. It has a lot of support from progressives. They'd probably be happy if it passed, but it's it's um, it's not as uh, not as uh, sexy, if you will, as public financing and the Dream Act. Okay, well, Bill Hammond, for columnist for the Daily News, we'll have to see what happens, what doesn't happen here in Albany, and you'll hopefully provide your expert analysis to us uh, in the coming weeks. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, this is Spin Class, and we're talking politics and all things New York today. And we have with us, and a little update, a special guest, uh, man I'm a big fan of, Tom Carroll from the Center for Opportunity and Education, the Foundation for Opportunity and Education, and one of the leaders in education reform in New York State who is leading the good fight right now for the education investment tax credit that we spoke about last week. And Tom is right in the thick of things up in Albany. Tom, welcome to SPIN Class. Thank you. Nice to be on with you, Michael. So, Tom, uh, I'm hearing today, and there was just a tweet from Ken Lovett at the Daily News that I just saw, that it's that uh, he is prognosticating that the education investment tax credit is not going to happen in this budget. Well, as they're fond of saying around Albany budget negotiations, it ain't over till it's over. And uh, they were expecting to announce a budget agreement today, and because a number of outstanding issues, uh, including ours, they're not going to be able to announce um, an agreement until sometime tomorrow. So uh, the issue we're talking about for people listening is for an education investment tax credit, which would allow people um, in public schools and for nonprofit scholarship funds, for people who donate to those to get a state tax credit, and that would increase the philanthropy. There's a lot of interest within um, the Catholic and Jewish communities in terms of raising the, the dollar amounts that are donated to scholarship funds as a way to help um, give parents greater options, but also to make both Catholic schools and Jewish schools more vibrant. So it's a very important issue uh, across the state, but particularly in the metropolitan area. And um, it's you've seen a, and Michael, you've been following this, but it's been an unprecedented coalition between the various religious communities, most importantly Cardinal Dolan of the Catholic Church, and the Orthodox uh, Jewish community. But at the same time, uh, you have more than 80 community groups around the state that have been part of the coalition, ranging from the Urban League in Buffalo to the NAACP in Brooklyn to Hispanic uh, groups on Long Island to uh, more than 20 labor unions around the state, um, cops, firefighters, uh, transport workers, uh, you know, almost every occupation, you know, pipe fitters, steam fitters, painters, electrical workers. Um, so it's been a kind of a very strange bedfellows coalition. Sure, and, um, and it keeps growing. In fact, you keep adding organizations as you've been going on. Even just this week, you've been adding a number of organizations around the state. So quite impressive. Right. And the support um, has been very substantial. The, the governor has been pushing strongly for it uh, this week in budget negotiations. The state Senate for two years now, and that's all three Senate leaders, uh, Senate Republican leader Dean Skelos, the head of the Independent Democratic Conference and co-leader of the Senate, Jeff Klein, and Andrew Stewart-Cousins, who uh, is the leader of the regular Democratic Conference, for lack of a better phrase, 
uh, have been strong supporters of it as well. Passed the Senate, as you know, by a vote of 55 to 4. Two-thirds of the Assembly Democrats, in fact, two-thirds of the entire membership of the State Assembly are on the bill. Ninety percent of the members of the Black and Hispanic Caucus are on the bill. Uh, two additional um, Latino members came on the bill just this week. So there's been a lot of activity um, and probably the broadest coalition anybody's seen on an education issue in a really long time. Okay, well, Tom, for those who don't know Albany for a second, because you, you just describe something that has really broad support out there. And if you're talking that two-thirds of the Assembly is on board and the whole Senate is on board and the governor's on board, what is keeping this from coming to fruition? If it's two-thirds, usually it's majority rule. Now you're telling me about two-thirds. What is going on? Why isn't this actually going to happen? Or, I'm sorry. Leadership-dominated uh, state legislature. So when the leadership's in favor of your issue, people generally like that. When leadership's not, it's uh, less attractive. So ironically, for an issue that's strongly supported by the Orthodox Jewish community, the biggest obstacle for it being adopted is Sheldon Silver, who is the Speaker of the State Assembly. And he has consistently in negotiations, the reason it hasn't been agreed to yet, is because he's been uh, privately and publicly opposed to adopting it. Whether that relates to teacher union opposition to the bill, I'll leave for other people to speculate. But um, he's been the obstacle, even though there are sufficient votes um, in the House. Obviously, you can pass a bill in the House with 50% of the votes, and we have a lot more than that. Two-thirds of the Democrats, another 10 or 15 Democrats, have uh, indicated to the Speaker and, the, or, and or the lead sponsor of the bill, Mike Cusick, uh, that they're in favor of it. Uh, so it's, it's had a very... You know, it has a lot of support, a lot more than people ever expected. And they, and there are two unions opposed to it, which is the State Teachers Union and the New York City Teachers Union. Um, but at the same time, you have more than 20 labor unions uh, that are in favor of it. So it, it's been a unusual situation in terms of a division within organized labor that's been pretty profound. And the, the ethnic and religious and geographic diversity of the support has been rather striking. And I think it's one of the reasons that the governor has uh, become a strong supporter over time, um, because he's seen the breadth of support literally from Brooklyn to Buffalo. We had a rally in Buffalo. We had 10,000 people showed up uh, to indicate their support for the legislation. Uh, in Westchester, there's a rally about 5,000 people. Could have been more, except that was the largest facility in Westchester. That's all that it would hold. So there's been a lot of grassroots support from one end of the state to the other, and that's been an important part about keeping the issue alive and moving forward. But the obstacle, to answer your specific question, the very specific obstacle has been the Speaker's unwillingness to allow it to be voted on and his unwillingness to uh, include it in the state budget so far. So there's a lot of horse trading that goes on in the state budget. Well, politics is about horse trading. I know that you know that. We're talking to Tom Carroll here on Spin Class from the Foundation for Opportunity Education, one of the prime movers behind the Education Investment Tax Credit, which he's telling me is still alive in Albany. So people out there, that means you should continue to express your support, make your phone calls to your legislators. And, Tom, I, I saw, couldn't help but seeing a statement from uh, a senator or state senator here from Manhattan uh a Jewish state senator, Liz Kruger, who said, a big part of my job for the last 12 years has been to ferret out Albany scams. 
<laughs> and she is calling this education investment tax credit an Albany scam. In fact, uh, she says, and she even criticized Cardinal Dolan, or at least the Daily News, for saying, uh, I'm not even sure what she was what she was saying. But what's your response to Liz Kruger here? Yeah, she, she's one of, uh, for those people who know her, she's kind of a uh, gadfly in the state senate. Um, and she's one of the four people in the state senate who's opposed to the bill. So uh, that's kind of where she's coming from. I suppose if it was a solar tax credit, she would probably be enthusiastically supporting it. Um, but with the teachers unions opposed to it, she has a different uh, viewpoint on it. Uh, it's an important issue for people who have children or people who believe that having an educated citizenry matter. Um, a lot of the critiques that she leveled in her daily news response to the daily news were based on things that simply weren't true in the bill. So her particular interest is to make sure that people weren't through a combination of state and federal tax credits getting more than a dollar back for a dollar that's donated. So the bill for a long time has had a provision that actually prevents that from happening, um, and that's true in both houses. So that particular issue she raised was actually she didn't, you know, she's not a tax lawyer, so I don't blame her for misunderstanding it, but uh, well, you she, should certainly do a little bit of homework before you start saying something is a scam. Uh, that's certainly something that's supported by so many different New Yorkers and so many different groups, and particularly religious groups. And you know, it's just un, unbecoming of an elected official to use that kind of language, in my point of it, view. It, but it is not uncharacteristic for her. <laughs> Fair <laughs> enough. Think it's unbecoming or not. One of the interesting issues in terms of horse trading is the speaker um, basically indicated he would not consider the legislation unless the Republicans in the state Senate and the governor agreed to uh, use tax dollars for uh, children of illegal immigrants uh, to basically help them pay for college. So it's a very, you know, that's a controversial issue. It's a totally different topic. Um, but that's the kind of thing where an issue could have a lot of support and end up getting tripped up from a totally unrelated issue. Kind of like um, the original charter school bill only was tied to Albany pay raises, and we discussed all, the lack of Albany pay raises earlier in the show as you know being the root of other Albany scandals. So everything, I guess, has that linkage as you get as we get close to that final budget deal. Yeah, I, I would have personally happen to disagree that. <laughs> okay. The lack of pay hikes have to do with uh, the corruption scandals, but I think it has more to do with. Um, I agree with you as well. I just individual ethical. Um, you know, beliefs or behaviors. Well, I think we all like to, you know, be a little bit charitable with people who have the public trust, but I, I tend to agree with you uh, as far as that was concerned. Well, Tom Carroll, thank you for fighting the good fight up there, and I'm glad to hear that there's still a chance. I guess uh, people should continue to do what they're doing and, and to garner support for this very important piece of legislation, correct? It's a very important issue, and I think people should continue to fight for it to the very last moment. Thank you very much. Tom Carroll, Opportunity in Education Foundation, and thanks for joining us here on Spin Class. Thank you. And we are now joined by Ross Barkin of the Politicker, the Observer Politics. Ross, welcome back to Spin Class. Uh, thanks for joining us once again. Ross, are you there? Ah, I think Ross was there.
And uh, I guess we're having technical difficulties. Oh, ah, Ross, the phone on mute. I know it happens to yeah. me all the time. <laughs> See, I knew, I knew I could feel the fact that you were there, but I couldn't actually hear you. So that's good. Uh, thanks for doing it telepathically, at least to start. So I guess you answered sure. my first question already. Uh, my second question, Ross, is with regard to uh, you reported on a very interesting uh, potential. We'll say at this point potential race, but you know this is a show we focus on uh, hypersensitive to Jewish politics as uh, as we try to be and to concern to the Jewish community. So certainly the fact that somebody credible or at least formidable is considering a challenge to longtime Assemblyman Dove Heikind, who is certainly uh, a formidable politician in every respect, uh, in my view. Uh, is uh, is noteworthy. So tell us what's going on in Borough Park or Borough Park Midwood, Southern Brooklyn, in the Orthodox Jewish stronghold uh, of the sure. 40, of the 48th Assembly District. Well, um, Nachman Caller, as you said, is planning uh, is is very serious. I'm told that a run um, against the hike, and um, as I'm sure your listeners probably know, he's a Republican district leader. Um, you know, he's a rabbinical scholar. He he has a real um, reputation in the community. And um, from what I've been told by by people, you know, close to him and familiar with his plans, is that they want to make this seem like a real grassroots effort. One, one tried to equate it to kind of a, a Tea Party uprising against uh, Dove Hikind, and, and I think maybe it speaks to some of the dissatisfaction in, in some parts of the Orthodox community with um you know, the assemblyman who's been there, you know, for about three decades or so. So, I mean, it, it's definitely the, the first real challenge he's had in some time, and it'll be interesting to see if Collar actually, you know, sticks it out and stays stays in this race. Well, that's what I actually was just going to bring up, is that Nachman Collar has once uh, declared intention to run for city council. He didn't run. He declared intention to run for state senate. He didn't run. Is there any reason to feel that, that from your sources that he's really serious about going through with this race. I mean, Dove hike into sitting on, I think, you know, more than a million dollars in the bank. Yeah. So it's a lot, it's a lot, you know, it's a lot to run against. And it, yeah. Um, yeah, no, it, it definitely is. I mean, it, it's an, it's not held battle for sure. Obviously, you know, general elections, you know, Republicans do well in, in uh, Assemblyman Hikins district in, in general, um, you know, Joe Loda performed fairly well there um, relative to other parts of the city. So, I mean, I, I've been told he's serious. I mean, people tell me, you know, he, he's very much committed to this run. Again, I'm sure he said that, though, for his council bid and for his, uh, you know, brief state Senate um, interest as well. But, um, you know, I, I think there's, from what I, from what I understand, is there's a real uh, push for, you know, uh, push for um, him to run um, from certain parts of the community. And, I mean, there's still rumblings that a Democrat could, could get into this as well and run against, uh, you know, the assemblyman in the primary. So I, I think more than ever there's a sense that he's at least more vulnerable, even if, you know, if Caller runs and he doesn't win for, for anti-hiking people out there, maybe if he does well enough that they can certainly – regroup and maybe try again in two more years. And it should be noted, um, you know, a Republican who wasn't even Jewish uh, ran, you know, I think back in 2010 and actually got a decent percentage of the vote. It was a different district. It was less Orthodox then. But I think that gives caller supporters some hope that, you know, he being an Orthodox Jew can really, you know, do some damage here. So let me just ask you, uh, is there something that Dove Heikind isn't doing out there that people 
are, are are they just tired of the same politician? I I in my point from my point of view it would seem to me despite you know certain things like the blackface incident, although I'm not sure how big that was in the Jewish community. It, it seems to me that Dov Heiken is pretty popular. Uh, maybe he doesn't pull votes the way he used to uh, in, in a way, but his but his candidates you know still won. He had a big victory with Ken Thompson. He supported him early on for district attorney, and Ken Thompson mm-hmm. would prevailed. So what is it that people are, are – are they just – again, are they just tired of Doe Hikind, are you saying? Or or there's really, like, a, on a policy perspective, feel he's not doing what he needs to be doing for the district? Um, well, I'll speak to, to – the, the, I'll answer your question. To the Thompson point briefly, he, he did, you know, do well with Thompson, but Charles Hines, his opponent, still, I think, did, did very well and won, won, won overwhelmingly in the primary, and I believe – I'm not looking numbers, but but did very well in the general election. So he wasn't necessarily able to pull votes in that instance. But um, I think it's a bit, a bit of a combination. You know, obviously he's been around a very long time, and I think people in general constituents who pay attention to their politicians, and we know in Borough Park, unlike other parts of the city, they really pay attention to their politicians. There could be a sense of hike and fatigue. You know, obviously he's very um, you know theatrical. Um, and, uh, you know, whether, you know, he's still bringing home the bacon, I guess, some, some people have questions whether he's still bringing home funds. I mean, certainly there, there's a striking contrast now in the district with him and, and David Greenfield, who's now, you know, rising in, in leadership in the city council. And I'm sure a lot of people have their problems with Greenfield, justified or not. But, you know, you have sort of a contrast in a younger politician who's, you know, seems to be, you know, more active on the ground level, not to say, you know, the caller is certainly not young and certainly isn't that kind of personality, but um, I think there's some of the sentiment out there, certainly among uh, younger Orthodox as well, that, that Hikens kind of had his time and time for him to move on, whether that translates into Knockman Caller um, doing well, that that's a big question. Well, yeah, well, certainly one thing you can, you can certainly – no, is that the Republican Party itself, despite the fact that many Jews vote Republican and have voted Republican in Brooklyn, and that's you know some of the few red spots uh, or the reddest spots in elections, whether they be presidential or mayoral, as you alluded to, are in Brooklyn and Southern Brooklyn Borough Park. Midwood, the party itself is is you know is not really much to speak of. They have three elected officials in the whole borough. Uh, pretty much all representing the same area. Marty Golden, Nicole Maliotakis, and Michael Grimm uh, at three different levels, Assembly, Senate, and right. uh, Congress. Uh, they haven't, the Republicans as a party really have turned, you know, they turned to Simcha Felder to run as a Democrat um, and this past year for the state Senate seat. So it's hard to see necessarily that the Republican label is really going to do a lot for him. I'm just, yeah. you know, that's, that's just my, my view here. Yeah, I, I agree that there's, there's the party infrastructure itself is not going to help Caller. I mean, they're, they're very few ground troops and, and, and money and things like that. I mean, the organization just isn't there. So I, I think he's not getting that outside help. I, I think, you know, what could help him is, um, you know, the branding of being a Republican and also the money that he could be willing to spend. I mean, you know, I, I've been told he's, he's very wealthy, and I don't know if he can match Hiken's million dollars, which is kind of an absurd number to, to spend on an assembly race, but, you know, crazier things have happened in the city. So I, I tend to agree that it, it's a real uphill fight. 
there's no doubt about that. And the Republican Party in Brooklyn is not going to really push him over the edge. But I, I think for people watching, it's not so much about Caller winning. It's about him you know, performing um, past his expectations or maybe giving Hike in a real fight. And I think that's more the point almost in Caller becoming the next assemblyman is really giving someone who, has, like I said before, has not had a real uh, serious challenger in, in many years. I, I don't even know when the last time it was, you know, a, a, real, uh, a real battle and, and seeing what happens from that. Well, and so let me pose another question. We're talking to Russ Barkin from The Politicker, uh, covers Brooklyn politics, and uh, certainly has is usually one of the first with the scoop on things going on in the Jewish community. Uh, Russ, a lot of the Jewish voters are very astute in you know, having their needs, net, uh, their needs met, and they really you know, certainly know where the pork comes from or where services come from. Will it appeal to a lot of Jewish voters to have a Republican assemblyman who essentially, you know, is is kind of rendered powerless to a large degree right. by the Albany power structure. I, I I think that's going to be another issue for him. I mean, how do you justify uh, being a Republican in the assembly? Now, obviously, there's not a whole lot of clout there. I mean, you know, Hyken does have a long-standing relationship with Shelley Silver, the Speaker. Um, he doesn't necessarily have a leadership you know, a big leadership position in the assembly, but he's been there a long time and knows a lot of people. So I think that's a fair point that that caller is going to, if if he runs, is going to have to justify to the community that that a Republican assemblyman is is where uh, the community needs to be. Um, I, I think his biggest advantages now are that you know he is known in the community. You know, he has somewhat of a base. He's a district leader. Um, he's going to be spending a lot of money. But I, I think an astute, you know, really politically astute voter certainly will go into the booth thinking, well, you know, why do I want this uh, Republican in there who's going to be marginalized um, in a Democrat-controlled body that will always be controlled by the Democrats, probably, you know, for the rest of our days. <laughs> <laughs> well, that doesn't give a lot of hope out there, but, uh, you know, certainly... I guess from the cycles of politics, it's been quite some time since the Republicans even had a prayer of getting gaining a majority in the Assembly, and certainly the vagaries of Albany are not kind to that eventuality. So yes. no, no, no question about that. Uh, where do you see the, the political stars or the stars of the political world, if you will, lining up in, in such a fight, if, if that's even kind of been – talked about i mean dove has a lot of chits to call in i would imagine on the other hand there are people who have clashed with dove he identified david greenfield he identified others <coughs> so uh where is this going to be some kind of battle royal or people just kind of ignore this race and say you know, hey you know I, what I, I not that interesting yeah i i think i think it is interesting i mean i think you know you may find more people staying neutral than you think i mean i've been told by by some people that you know, Bill de Blasio himself is still not happy with Dove Hyken over kind of how he backed Thompson in the primary, and de Blasio doesn't forget those sorts of things. I mean, I don't know if he, he's very busy now. I don't know if he's going to go out of his way to interfere in a race to drive Dove Hyken out of Borough Park, but I think he shouldn't accept help necessarily from, you know, Gracie Manchin. Obviously, you know, Greenfield uh, despises Hyken, and I don't think I don't think he makes too much of a secret of that. Um, so he, he will he will certainly not endorse him. I don't think, and uh, wouldn't wouldn't shock me. And I have no evidence of this, but but that you know he 
you know, behind the scenes would be not pushing collar, but not, not at all helping Heiken. And certainly Simka Felder isn't necessarily a big Heiken ally. You know, he's more the type, I think, to kind of stay out of the fight and remain neutral. So, I mean, I'm, I'm sure, you know, Heiken will be able to call in some chits, as you said. I mean, Ken Thompson is very loyal to him now. I mean, he's the Brooklyn district attorney and, uh, not, they can't make endorsements legally, but I mean, you know, he's someone who, who knows, I mean, could, could help in some way. I don't know. Um, and I'm sure there are local leaders who are going to be loyal to, to Heiken. who has been there for so long and certainly done things, but, um, certainly the, the big names in Borough Park, I mean, I don't, I don't see him having necessarily big people coming down to endorse him or fight for him. Not the, but again, not that he needs that. I think he well. I think he can definitely win re-election and probably win by a solid margin. But at the same time, he, he doesn't really have a good friend in the city council or necessarily in the state senate. Okay, Ross Barkin from the Politicker, and we shall see uh, what happens in the 40th Assembly District in Borough Park. Certainly, if it shapes up to be a competitive race, it will be closely watched by a lot of us, including here on this show. So, thanks for joining us here on Spin Class. Thanks for having me. Much appreciated. Always a pleasure. This is Spin Class, sponsored by Beckerman. And we were supposed to have Asher Mansdorf, former president of the Lawrence School Board, uh, School District 15, my home district. I like to talk about you know some of my own personal goings on. But coming uh, up on Monday, there is a referendum uh, for the sale of a school in Woodmere. If you recall, we did talk about it last year. There was a sale of this of this uh, of the school. And uh, it was defeated, and it was, uh, and they're re- they were doing it again this year to sell it. So come out and vote on the 31st, which is Monday. And uh, we're going to wrap up with our knucklehead of the week. The knucklehead award this week goes to my former colleagues at the Long Island Power Authority, LIPA. And it is really amazing, and I'm not even sure if it's legal, but I guess it is, to collect a tax that is no longer collect a, a tax on a bill. For, that is a tax that no longer exists. LIPA had to pay a revenue tax to the state of New York for $26 million. That tax expired. They no longer have to pay it to the state of New York, but the trustees voted today to keep collecting that tax. They're going to they're gonna take it and they're going to use it for other purposes, not pay the tax. So they're collecting tax. It's like going to a store. There's no sale tax on this item. They're going to collect it anyway because they can. And that really deserves a knucklehead award of the week. It is really terrible shameful i'm quite upset and just another thing that even the reconstituted lipa really has a problem with serving their customers on long island shame on them and this is spin class there's that music thank you avrami join you again next week for another episode on the nachem single network